Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, indeed, this is your word. Um, you have spoken it into scripture, and you, uh, we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, the last thing we need is to rely upon, you know, one person's study and preparation. We need a lot more than that. We need your Holy Spirit to come. And we need uh, your Holy Spirit to apply this word to our hearts through this, this work of preaching to the end that we would uh, glorify your name, that we would make much of your gospel, that Jesus would be exalted, that your name would be made great, that we would love each other deeply from the heart. Lord, that we would be a repenting people, a believing people, a people whose uh, joy it is to give our lives away for your glory that we may gain from you, and to love this city and this world, which so badly needs good news. So Jesus, we commend it all to you and thank you. It's in your name we pray, amen. A few years ago, a guy named Dave Vessio shared this on Twitter. I saw a guy at Starbucks today, no iPhone, no tablet, no laptop. He just sat there drinking coffee like a psychopath. Now, that one tweet got over a million likes, and it's been retweeted over 200,000 times, and it's been quoted over 10,000 times. And, and I think the reason it resonates so deeply with us is because it's normal in our experience for simple things to become incredibly complicated. You know, for the main thing to get lost in the mix of all the other things. So, you know, your job description says you do X, but then you get the job and you find out it's not just X, it's X, Y, Z, and it's one, two, three. You know, and the, the, that little improvement you decided to do on your home, you know, you find out that, that, yeah, you can do that improvement, but there's a whole lot of permits you gotta get through before you get to it. Or that conversation you thought was gonna be straightforward and it ended up opening all kinds of wounds you didn't even know were there. Simple things, seemingly simple, becoming incredibly complicated. Complication, confusion are our normal and normalcy is our abnormal, right? So much so that going to Starbucks, which last I heard is actually a coffee shop, you know, just to sit and drink a cup of coffee makes you look like a psychopath. And we've seen something of this dynamic in Mark's gospel and how people relate to and respond to Jesus. We, you know, um, we saw that not only those who, are, who oppose him, but those closest to him, you know, are often responding to him as a crazy person. So Jesus' mission, you know, is stated very plainly. It's in, in, in its own way, it's very simple. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 38, when he said, you know, when there's all this pressure to heal people and do all these things and kind of bring about this great, you know, the greatest show on earth. And Jesus says, you know, here's why I came. I came to preach the good news. I came to bring the gospel. Jesus' mission, in other words, requires not, not merely preaching the good news, but, but some great measure of persistence to stay focused on it. So I want to focus on it this morning by looking at this passage kind of with an eye to three things. First of all, the scandalous pursuit of Jesus. Secondly, the sustaining presence of Jesus. And then finally, the searching purpose of Jesus. Our passage begins with Jesus going out again by the sea. And since he's going out beside the sea again, 
uh, we've got to be thinking about the last time he was by the sea, and that was when he called his first disciples. And we find out in this passage that he's not done calling his disciples, but he singles another person out to follow him, a guy named Levi who's sitting at a tax booth. Now, when Levi's identified as one sitting at a tax booth, that is to say he's a tax collector. Unlike the first disciples Jesus called, he's not in the business of getting fish, he's in the business of getting money. And, he, and to put a finer point on it, he's in the business of getting your money. And, and I doubt there's ever been a culture that's looked kindly on their tax collectors, and it's certainly no different then, but it's, it's not exactly getting at who Levi is to simply think of him as kind of an ancient IRS agent. Um, these people were um, folks who not merely collected taxes, but also bound up in their professions was kind of who they were collecting them for and, and how they were making their own money. Um, Levi would have been collecting taxes for a guy named Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. When, when Herod died, he divided his kingdom among his three sons, each part of them receiving a piece of it. And that meant that there were now borders where before there weren't borders. And, and, and so if you wanted to travel across these little borders in the kingdom, there'd be little toll booths there. And you'd have to pay a toll or a duty if you wanted to travel on. So everyone, you know, to get from one part of the kingdom to another had to, had to shell out a little money. And everyone remembered it used to be free. So, you know, Levi's sitting at one of these little tax booths. So, you know, imagine you decide to go to Home Depot later in the afternoon. And then you get down there and, you know, you're driving on Cerritos and you come to Cerritos and Siler. And it's not just that there's a stoplight there. There's a little booth where you got to pay five bucks just to go to Home Depot, right? That, that gives you a sense of how infuriating it was, but, he, but making it even worse, you knew that your money was going to Herod and Typus, but really it was going to Rome, the occupying powers, the people you wanted nothing to do with, you wanted out of your country, and topping it all off, these guys worked on commission. And, you know, you're not only being inconvenienced, they're taking your hard-earned money, they're filling the coffers of the occupiers, they're pretending it's all in your interest, and guys like Levi are getting rich doing it. And look, Capernaum's a small town. If you lived there, you would have seen Levi around. You would have seen him wearing nicer clothes than you, living in a nicer house than you, eating better food than you, maybe the kids are going to a better school than your kids are going to, and you know it's all because he's a thief. Tax collecting then was a profession, kind of this cluster of ill-gotten gain, corruption, oppression, greed, betrayal. Which means when you see the term tax collector in the Bible, you can just go right ahead and substitute the term the worst person in the world. The worst person in the world! So it's scandalous, it's hard to overstate how scandalous it is when Jesus singles out the worst person in the world to follow him and be one of his disciples. Because it's not like there wasn't anyone else around. I mean, surely he could have found someone or anyone more qualified to follow him than the worst person in the world. At the same time, I don't, I don't want to overlook what it must have been like to be Levi. You know, imagine his typical day in Capernaum. 
And, and I don't, I've, I've been kind of struggling to think about professions like this in our day, maybe a meter maid on steroids or a gate agent at the airport, you know, just people who have these jobs where, you know, no one ever thanks them and it's just, they're always on the receiving end of complaints. But for Levi, it would have been well beyond that. Not just complaints, but venom, hatred, resentment, accusation. Maybe, you know, almost to the point at times of feeling like I'm about to get physically attacked here because of the anger. But when Jesus comes by his little booth, he doesn't avoid him, he doesn't accuse him, he doesn't condemn him, he notices him. And he invites him and says, come and follow me. It's really astonishing. And Levi responds to that call in the same way Simon, Andrew, James, and John did. He gets up and he follows him. You know, but we need to appreciate that, that it cost him more probably than it did the other disciples because they got up from their fishing nets and followed Jesus, but they could go back to fishing. And in fact, they did that from time to time. But with Levi, he can't go back. Uh, once he's abandoned his post, he can't pick it up later. And so he does that. And the next thing we, we see in the text is he goes kind of from the seaside to the table side. Uh, Levi's left the tax booth, and he's, he's gained a place at Jesus' table. And, and somewhere along the way, we're not told how or why, but a bunch of Levi's tax-collecting buddies uh, have joined him, along with a bunch of other notorious characters that Mark just calls sinners. And all of them are at the table with Jesus, and they're all eating which might seem to us like no biggie, uh, no big deal, like you got to eat, except that eating together in that culture was a big deal, a very big deal. If, if you did just a little Bible study with, a, with an eye for sharing meals in the Bible, you would find out that, you know, it was over the sharing of the meal, over the breaking of bread that, you know, families are reunited, enemies are reconciled. Peace treaties are, formal, are formalized. Hostilities cease. Covenants are made. All that means that, you know, Jesus isn't just sharing a meal. He's making a statement. He's saying, you know, these aren't just people I'm living around. These are people I'm in league with. These are my people. You get a sense of what a big deal eating together is if you look at another story in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 7 where Jesus is invited to share a meal with a Pharisee by the name of Simon. Um, and in the course of the evening, Jesus calls Simon out. You know, and he calls him out on the fact that, yeah, we're sharing a meal together, but it is not what it should be. He points out all the things that were requisite to come with the breaking of bread together that had been denied him. He says, Simon, you withheld water for the washing of my feet when I got here. You, you didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. So, you know, yeah, you've got me over for dinner, but Jesus says, you know, that's just an appearance of hospitality. And you, you've actually denied me the depth of welcome the, the acceptance, the fellowship that is requisite when we break bread together. And, and Jesus says that's not how eating works. Eating together works. And so, you know, that is decidedly not what Jesus is doing here. He's denying nothing. He is sharing a meal with all the wrong kinds of people, demonstrating in this very public way, these are my people. It's a powerful statement, and it is deeply, deeply scandalous. And I, I want to be careful because, you know, we, we all have our 
cultural biases. And I think one of ours is we love, you know, 21st century Americans love underdog stories. You know, we love it where, you know, we love the idea of Jesus thumbing his nose at the establishment. You know, we, we, we love that, right? But just to get a, a feeling for this, you know, just imagine you saw me or Greg or Sandy, one of the pastors of this church, talking to a well-known, notorious, you know, criminal person, just got out of jail, you know, everyone in town knows they've done something horrible, and, and maybe you thought from a distance, well, isn't it nice that our pastors are talking to such a, 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 a broken person, you know, someone so notorious in the community? You know, and then you, you talk to us about it later and said, you know, I saw you talking to that person whose name I saw splattered across the headlines the other day. What were you talking about? And, I, and, and one of us would say, well, we were planning our vacation together. We're going on vacation together. It kind of changes it, right? So eating with sinners for Jesus becomes, you know, a source of massive controversy. It's so massive, actually, it dogs him all the way to the cross. And, you know, we're chief among the charges leveled against him where not only that he receives sinners, but that he eats with them. So it would have been one thing to call Levi from his booth to kind of keep him at arm's length and say, you know, we're going to work on amending your life so that in time and with sufficient progress, you know, you will be welcome to my table. Um, but Jesus doesn't engage with Levi like that. He doesn't treat him as a, prog pro you know, as a project. He welcomes him as a person. And the religious leaders are scandalized. They are appalled. Now, this is the first place you see the term Pharisees mentioned. And if you've been around church, if you've gone to Sunday school or something, it's probably likely that that word Pharisee is sort of a synonym for you for um, something like a religious hypocrite. But I want to be careful about that kind of knee-jerk way of looking at these guys because you know, it's not super helpful for us to just go, those are the villains, Jesus is the good guy, and we're with the good guys. Because there's, there's a lot more going on in these confrontations. Um, it's not just as simple as we're with the good guys and they're the bad guys. And I think we miss a lot in the story if we take that posture. Pharisees, the word Pharisee just means separate one. These were basically dedicated church leaders um, who had a deep concern for for, for knowing the Bible, for following the teachings of the Bible so that it became a part of everyday life. You know, they wanted to see in the community people who not just sort of talking the talk of the Bible, but walking the walk. You know, they, they cared about personal holiness to the law. That was really at the heart of everything for them. So, you know, it's, I don't think it's all that helpful, at least for me and maybe you, to look at these guys as, as being absolutely nothing like me. Because in, in, I think, some really important ways, they're a lot like all of us in some way. You know, and, and I think, certainly speaking for myself, if there were a computer program and you could, you know, do some in-depth psychological profile of me and stick it in the computer and say, okay, survey the Bible and spit out the person that you are most like, I guarantee you the name would not be Jesus, it would be Pharisee. That's the closest analog I can find to Reverend John Standridge in the Bible. These were people passionate about the teaching of the Bible, people who hated to see the word being violated, desiring to see people see the beauty of it and take it up in their life and follow it. All that, I think, figures into why 
They're so scandalized at Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners because, you know, he seems a little cavalier, doesn't he? He seems a little unconcerned about their personal walk. You know, he might be edging close to and, you know, of, of even appearing to approve of it. And, and you, you know, it's, it's a reasonable question to ask Jesus, wouldn't it be better before going that far, before welcoming and befriending and God help us enjoying their company, we could affect a little behavioral change first? And you might say, well, isn't it, you know, a minute ago, I said, well, didn't Levi do that? He got up from his tax booth, he made the clean break with his old corrupt profession, and now he's following Jesus. Well, maybe so, but it's very clear that every round of, everyone around the table has not done that. Not yet. Some of these folks will be going right back to the tax booth. Some of them will be going right back to the bar. Some of them will be going right back to the brothel. And we know this because the text tells us who's around the table. Brace yourselves. Sinners are around the table. And, and you know, let's not water that word down, okay? It's not just naughty people. It's not just people who you know, eat too much chocolate. It's notorious people. It's the kind of people, if you saw coming down the street, you know, uh, you'd cross to the other side. It's the kind of people you don't want your kids around. It's the kind of people you wouldn't want, you know, buying the house next door. Uh, it's the kind of people where you would say, you know, if you began to talk about what's, what's wrong with society, you would begin to talk about these kinds of people. Can you see how challenging this is? It's very challenging. Can you feel just a little bit the inner Pharisee in your heart rise up and ask the question, Jesus, what are you doing? What kind of example are you setting? You know, I, I suspect it was stories like this that got the writer Annie Dillard reflecting on her childhood experience growing up in the church, surrounded by adults, urging the kids to read the Bible. And she did that, and then she, she reflected on it later. She asked this questions of the adults in her writing. She said, why did they spread this scandalous document before our eyes? If they had read it, I thought, they would have hid it. They didn't recognize the vivid danger that we would, through repeated exposure, catch a case of its wild opposition to their world. This Bible, this ubiquitous, persistent black chunk of a bestseller, is a cleft, only, uh, often the only cleft through which the winds howl. It is a singularity, a black hole into which our rich and multiple worlds strays and vanish. We crack open its pages at our peril. Many educated, urbane, and flourishing experts in every aspect of business, culture, and science entered its queer, straight gates and were lost. Eyes open, heads high, in full possession of their critical mind, they obeyed the high inaudible whistle and let the gates close behind them. It is the book that kidnaps children and hooks them. So there's some danger here. There's danger in this question. There's a threat in it. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Everything we know about how the world is supposed to work is falling apart in front of us. And there's danger in Jesus' answer. And 
let's begin with what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, sorry, you're right, and it'll never happen again. Neither does he say, ah, get over yourselves. Quit labeling people. Quit being so judgmental. Be more accepting. He doesn't say either of those things. He says instead, those who are well have no need of a, of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The first thing I want to notice about this extraordinary answer is that Jesus actually agrees with the Pharisees about something critically important. The Pharisees are scandalized because Jesus has gotten close to people who are really sinful, and Jesus agrees with that diagnosis. The Pharisees see in these people a dysfunction, a brokenness, a sickness in their lives, and Jesus essentially says, you're absolutely right. He, he agrees that they're sick. In fact, he go, he, you know, as we tease this answer out, he's going to say, you know, they're sicker than they know. This isn't, you know, just, you know, rest and get some fluids sick. This is get yourself to a doctor sick. And, you know, the fact that they're sick, that they're deeply sinful, isn't where Jesus differs with them. Not at all. Where he differs with them is on the seriousness of the sickness and on what to do about it. Now, I want to pay close attention to the answer, and as we do pay close attention to this answer, I want to urge you to pay close attention to yourselves, lest we get into this deal of, you know, trying to get Jesus to fit our mold, because he just doesn't. You know, because here's, you know, here's what happens. For the liberal-minded among us, we can think Jesus is far more concerned with the acceptance than the sin, and for the conservative-minded among us, we can think that he's far more concerned with the sin than the acceptance, but Jesus cuts against both those mindsets. Uh, he doesn't really side with the legalists or the libertines. He doesn't side with the highly religious or the highly rebellious. He's, in other words, he's far more accepting than even the most radically liberal person in this room, and he's far, he holds a far higher standard than the most stringent conservative in this room. He doesn't give up any of it. And that's important because it can be our tendency to think that the only way to actually be really gracious is to back off the law. Or the only way to be really committed to holiness is to back off grace. And Jesus doesn't back off of anything. He has another way altogether. He doesn't withhold hospitality or acceptance, and he agrees that the people at his table are deeply sick all, all at once. And this is so challenging, I think, because Jesus is after something much bigger than rule-keeping or rule-breaking. He is after righteousness. He's all about righteousness, and that's a different thing. Because, you know, whatever you and I may be, whether you're a right winger or a left winger or a religious person or a rebellious person or you're a shark or a jet, right? We all carry in ourselves a very strong sense of how things ought to be for ourselves and for the world, which isn't actual righteousness, but it's a deep sense of it. And it's that sense of righteousness that causes some of us to happily diminish with the demands of God's law in order to ensure acceptance because we believe the ultimate in righteousness is acceptance. You see that? 
while others of us happily diminish acceptance in order to uphold God's law because we believe the ultimate in righteousness is following the rules. But Jesus challenges that sense of righteousness. In fact, it's how he sums up his answer to the Pharisees. He starts talking about, you know, a doctor and the sick, and then, but, but he, he's, he concludes it this way. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't think I can overstate what a radical answer that is and how shocking it would have been to his audience to hear that. You can imagine these religious leaders going, what the heck have we been doing for the last millennia plus if God's law was given to us not to become righteous and acceptable to God? And now you're saying it counts for nothing that God didn't come for those kinds of people? What are you talking about? But here's the critical thing, and this is where Jesus, I think, hits us all where we live. While God's law revealed a perfect righteousness, it never reckoned anyone righteous. Never reckoned anyone righteous. No one ever became acceptable to God through obedience to the law. In fact, you know, if you look at how the scriptures talk about how the law works, let's say, for example, in Romans 7, Paul, Paul gets into an in-depth description of how it worked in his own life, and I think how it works in everybody's life, and he says, it does two things. It reveals God's righteousness and it reveals the depth of my sin. You know, it's like when the sun comes on in in the morning and you thought you were living in a clean house and then you look around and you go, this place is a pit. In the light of God's holiness, we realize that about ourselves, right? And Paul actually goes so far as to say that if it weren't for the law, he wouldn't have even known what sin was. He'd have no idea. We're the kinds of people, I think, who play games with the law, who, who, who kind of parlay, you know, out of our own sense of righteousness. We compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm, 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 I'm not the best, but I'm not as bad as this guy. You know, or, or we do it in really religious ways. We obsess over our own progress. You know, I'm a church person. I've grown a lot over the years. I've learned so much, more than you. When you really face it and have God's righteousness revealed to you and, and, and through it, you, you discover fundamentally that He is ineffably holy and I am utterly sinful. And that's when you know to look for life not in and through your own obedience, but through the Savior. And you get a vivid picture of how deadly relying on obedience to the law for righteousness actually is in this story because he is in the midst of supreme law keepers. I promise you, people who know the Bible better and live more according to its statutes and rules than anyone here does, the Pharisees. And yet, no one is diminishing that law more than the Pharisees themselves. Even as they insist that they are keeping it, they're breaking it right in front of Jesus. And it turns out, ironically, that the most desperately sick and the most in need of help and those furthest from the heart of God's law and those most blind to its beauty aren't Jesus' guests, it's the Pharisees. 
Because rather than a concern for these broken people, these human beings beautifully made in God's image, rather than a heart for where they will be in eternity someday, they're concerned about who they're eating with. They're not sympathetic to them in their sin and brokenness. They're not delighting that finally a rabbi has shown up who cares for them, who is bringing them near to the Word of God. They're just appalled that an otherwise upstanding, nice Jewish boy like Jesus would sully himself with their, by eating a meal with them, with, with sinners. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees that it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick, he's not just speaking to them, he is speaking about them. And I also want to notice that the grace of Jesus is expansive. He's inviting them. In telling them this, he's issuing the invitation. He's telling them there is no life in your rules and regulations. There's no life in it. There, There is only life in relationship with him, and it begins with knowing that you're sick. You need a doctor. You're unrighteous, and you need a righteousness You need something more than directions for living. You need a doctor in order that you might live. And and there is absolutely nothing more vital than that, is there? Because the sick person who gets the doctor is restored to health and lives. But the sick person who refuses the doctor gets sicker and sicker and sicker and dies. And that is... The tragedy of our self-righteousness in a nutshell. That, it, that it, take, it doesn't take the sin seriously enough and it doesn't take grace seriously enough. It's always standing on the outside. You know, always standing supposedly upright in my supposed rule keeping, and by the way, lots of rule making, which fools us into thinking that I'm healthy and I don't need a doctor. That I'm righteous and I don't need a savior. Not really a savior. Life coach, yes. Co-pilot, absolutely. Savior, not so fast. Nothing will keep you from Jesus as surely as your self-righteousness, as your own sense of righteousness. Nothing will keep you from him as surely as that. And when we're we're really grasping the reality that Jesus came not for the righteous but for sinners and see that as actually operative in our lives, like this week we think about that, the truth of that, this strange thing will start to happen to you and to me. We will begin not merely to repent of our sin, we'll repent of our righteousness. And and, and let me tease that out, okay, because I realize that's a funny thing to say. I don't mean repenting of actual righteousness, okay? If you go out and tell the truth this week, don't repent of that. Um, You know, you shouldn't repent of being a faithful spouse or loving your neighbor. Those are good things. I I will say those are things that in light of the gospel, you'll realize as you grow how deeply flawed all of it is. You're not quite as faithful and as truth-telling and as loving as you think. What I mean is that you'll begin to see there's a massive difference, massive between being a moralist and a Christian. Because, you know, let's, moralists and Christians have some important things in common, I think. I mean, you know, moralists have an awareness of their shortcomings, of their transgressions. They have a sense of sin. Both moralists and Christians may even, you know, have a deep enough awareness of those things to drive them to, you know, like we saw in the Beatitudes, to, to make them poor in spirit, make them mournful of their sins, to, to maybe even become meek. That'll happen with moralism. 
And that happens in Christianity. So, you know, both moralists and Christians repent of their sins, but only Christians repent of their righteousness. Moralists don't do that. Moralists will, you know, they'll admit their failures. They'll, they'll say, you know, I've messed up. I've got some shortcomings, but they're, in the next breath, they will spend time urging you to look at all the good stuff they've done. They want you to see their righteousness, their faithfulness in marriage, their integrity in their professional life, their success, how accepting they are of others, how caring they are. Like, you know, yes, I've fallen short here, but look at all the good stuff. But Christians, a Christian will turn from and give up on all of that as a ground of righteousness. A Christian will say, look, whatever good you happen to see in me, what you're actually seeing is grace. Uh, because guess what? The way Jesus received me was completely relying upon him and what he has done and not in anything in me. That's the difference. They don't point you to their goodness. They point you to their Savior. The Christian knows they can't heal themselves by being their own doctor. They, they, can't, they also know they can't be received by Jesus by being their own righteousness. And it's just kind of haunting to see, it's a haunting thing to see how easily one with a zeal for God's word, with, with a zeal for personal holiness, with, with a sense of, you know, a, a drive for societal reform, you know, all in the name of Jesus can end up being so far from Jesus. You know, so much so that you find it scandalous to see the sick finally getting the help they need from the Savior. All while being convinced that they're not sick. Some of us grew up in churches like that. I won't ask you to raise your hands. This story, you know, has rattled me. And, and you know, I think it ought to kind of rattle all of us. Not to despair, but to dependence. To dependence on Christ alone. Turning from our sin in any stand that we may take outside and of and other than our righteousness in Jesus Christ, our acceptance of Him. And I suspect that in knowing that we too were sick and needful of a doctor, that we are unrighteous and need, in need of a righteousness, you know, that has great power. That has power to change an entire community and entire cities if a church is shaped by the gospel in such a way that we are taking sin very seriously and grace very seriously as Jesus does. You know, so that, so that we would be determined, you know, to rely on Jesus more and more in everything we do. To the end that we would grow more and more into the kind of church that, that doesn't look down on sinners, but is constantly looking for them. Looking out for them, asking them to come and join us in a place that is full of them. You know, I'd said earlier, Levi got up from, a, from his booth and made a radical break with his past and how much that cost him. But you know, I thought yesterday, what, what, I wonder what Levi would say about it. And, and I suspect that Levi would say, you have no idea how much richer I got for following Jesus. I thought I was rich. I wasn't. You know, instead of receiving the scorn of the righteous, which was his life, he received the grace of Jesus, gaining immeasurable riches that cost him nothing 
being welcomed to the table. And Jesus is still doing this. He's still welcoming people to the table, to this table, a table for sinners, a table for people who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus and have turned from trusting in themselves to trusting in the Savior. Um, Not a table for those who think they're well, not not a table for people who feel they've earned a spot here, you know, um, because you can't come to this table full. You got to come hungry. That's why it's a meal. It's a table for the hungry and the thirsty. It's a table for the sick and the sinful. It's a table for those who've heard the call of Jesus, have got up and followed, have been, have been brought to repentance, have embraced Christ by faith, and knowing that He has not only, you know, taken the punishment I deserve for sin, but He has endured and enduring the wrath that is due to sin, but He's also earned for me a righteousness that I could never earn. And if you're seeing, maybe for the first time today, that you've been relying on something other than Him, whatever ramshackle righteousness, you know, you've self-constructed, whatever you're doing to sing for your supper, or whatever morsels you are consuming in this life, you know, don't take the meal today, but let today be the day where you repent of your sin, you repent of your righteousness, and find everything in Jesus. And we'll get you to this table right away, and it will be joyful, and you will find yourself richer than you've ever been. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a great Savior, and we thank you for your persistent pursuit of people like us, because, Lord, we were not looking for you. We were running away. The Scriptures say that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were far away. We were um, constructing a life for ourselves. We even did that in such a way where we imagined that was the whole point of life. We were living as our own kings, our own queens. And Jesus, you came and kindly subdued us to yourself and gave us something so much better by telling us the truth about our sin, that it is far deeper and more deadly than we can imagine, doing great harm to us, doing great harm to people around us, often calling it good, often surrounding ourselves with people who would affirm us in those things. But Jesus, you were gracious to call us to your table to set us free, to to forgive our debts and to fill our account with your riches. And so, Lord, we pray that you would attend to us as we come to this table and that, that we would, you know, we wouldn't just be moralists who are, you know, really, who think we're good at rule keeping. There's no life in that. We want to come hungry and thirsty, depending on you alone, standing on no other ground than on that which we have in you as our strong foundation, as the rock upon which we stand so that anything can come and we can say, this is our life. And so thank you for this table. It's a great foretaste. We look forward to the day, Jesus, come quickly. Take us to yourself. Put an end to this um, the sin that does so much damage. But, but here and now, help us to just live in you, love you, and love our neighbors, and gratefully receive everything you have for us here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.